0: Accomplished lady from the world of mergers and acquisitions and restructurings and all this stuff that I frankly know so little about, which is why I love doing the podcast because I learn. She talks about investing, cap raising, funds, and we're going to get all into that. She is the co founder and CEO of the Center Cap Group. She is Deborah Smith. Deborah, welcome to Street Smart Success.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me on the program.
0: Yeah, you're welcome and uh no, I mean most of the people I talk to are not don't have well some of them have institutional backgrounds but most of what they're currently doing is really some of them really small you know, real estate deals, it could be mobile home parks, it could be self storage, it could be multifamily, even 50 units kind of thing. Some of them mm-hmm. more institutional, 200, 300, but, but your background is, is clearly vaster than that. And I think vaster than real estate, if my understanding is correct. So along those lines, you and I have been chatting, you, you come from originally down under, maybe give me the, uh, Deborah Smith background uh, that led you up to, you know, getting into the world of finance and what you're doing now.
1: So you are correct. I grew up in Australia, the land down under. I grew up very rural in a dairy farming community and uh, had a very young education in work ethics and working hard and earning my own way from a very young age. I then went off to college and did a, got a law degree, got an economics degree, and then was fortunate enough to land a position with Morgan Stanley in their Australian office. Spent a year there and then was transferred to the US. And uh, I was a loner for a year, but I have been here ever since. I've moved from the infrastructure space, energy and power utilities over into healthcare and then eventually found my way into real estate. And I've been in the real estate business ever since. And that's kind of where I am today. We started our firm, CenterCap Group in 2009. We've continued to grow, and last year was our busiest year. And I, I think this year is going to exceed it. I think, uh, despite what the uh, is on the front page of newspapers, I think the real estate markets are alive and well.
0: Okay, wow, that is an optimistic view. That's refreshing. I want to take a half a step back and um, ask you this question. So, when you were doing utilities in healthcare. Was it, what kind of work was it? Was that M&A work? Was it consulting work? What exactly did you do?
1: So I'm a career investment banker and I have always worked on the transaction side, always on the M&A side. When I began in Australia, my actual first assignment was privatizing the South Australian power system. And I moved over to the U.S. uh, working on power utilities transactions here. And when I moved over and I've moved around to a few firms, I went on to healthcare banking and did corporate transactions in the healthcare space before my first deal in real estate in 2005, which I think it was just the right place, right time. Uh, I had no intentions of actually doing real estate, had never thought about it, never contemplated it, but it happened to be the start of the big REIT uh, transaction boom in 2005 through to 2007. And so I became in on the, the very front end of that and had was very fortunate to work on a great many uh, go-private transactions during that period. And so that led me into a, a multitude of different areas within banking, but, but all of them comes back to an expertise of understanding and working with corporates.
0: Okay. So here's the um, dummy question of the day, mm-hmm. and, and I should be too embarrassed to ask this. But here I am in front of the whole world and I'm going to ask this dumb question because I've heard this term a million times and I never thought to ask, what is an investment banker?
1: You know, it's funny. Whenever I do interviewings for new positions, I often ask people what they think I do all day. Uh, so on the investment banking side, you know, it's, it's different from a merchant bank where you're investing your own capital. And it's different from a brokerage shop, which mainly focus on the buying and selling of individual assets. On the investment banking side, it's really much more focused on what corporate level activity and whether that is on the mergers and acquisition side, on the corporate finance side, capital raising side, security side, there is much more of a corporate investment angle to it. So from my perspective, even looking at MA transactions, it is focused on the buying and selling of corporations. And that's kind of been the genesis of everything that I have done throughout my career.
0: Okay. And so it is vaster. I, I just assumed, which is why I asked the question because I didn't really know. I kind of assumed it was really just M&A but the term is broad, it applies to way broader scope than just MA.
1: It, it does. It, you know, securities trading businesses, uh, fixed income issuances, fixed income trading, anything in a capitalization stack at a corporate level is covered out of investment banking. Within a large bank, it obviously has different segments. There's going to be a corporate finance side which does M&A and also does capital markets. There's a security side, there's a trading business side, there's a commodity side. All of these things can be get traded or activities that are performed by an investment bank. And so it is much broader than M&A.
0: Okay. You explain things so crisply and, and succinctly. I very much appreciate it. On the M&A side, here's what I made up in my mind, and you can tell me if I'm even remotely right or completely wrong. So when somebody says they're an investment banker in M&A, I kind of see them as somebody that's putting two sides of the deal together, or maybe representing one side and basically working on a commission. Is that, it's clearly an oversimplification, but is it completely wrong or partially right or?
1: No, that's fair. That's fair. I, I, you know, an M and A banker, an investment banker is somebody that does focus on corporate level transactions, uh, and they're buying and selling. They're either representing the sell side, which is representing the company that is looking for a, st- for a transaction or their buy side, and they're representing the buyer who is looking to for a transaction for somebody to acquire, and it is a commission. Although we call it, we don't call it commission. We call it success based uh, business. is is effectively is effectively how it works. So I think you're you're correct there. Okay. Not a dumb question.
0: <laughs> okay. I don't know. It's my podcast. It's real estate. <laughs> it's kind of financy. Might one might think I would know this stuff, and I don't. So you've now helped me out. Um, Okay. So 2005, you get into real estate and tell me kind of what you did in real estate and kind of what that trajectory has been.
1: Sure. So coming from you know the bulge bracket banks, uh, going from Morgan Stanley to Acovy and then to Lehman, across all of those, it was buying and selling corporates or merging corporates or even selling a division of a corporate, but it was always a corporate level transaction. When we started CenterCap, we actually uh, focused on corporate transaction, which is true, primarily within the investment management space. So buying and selling investment managers or asset managers, operators, uh more on the private side of folks that own or control real estate. Uh, we also had a business that works on capital raising. And so it raises programmatic capital, separate account dollars, as well as funds. Uh, with a real estate angle. And so that's purely within the real estate. But we also have a consulting business that is more likely to compete with consulting firms on that works with real estate owners and operators, et cetera. On business planning, consulting, strategic planning—you want to figure out how to grow your business, how you're going to do it. It's uh, it does fanous opinions. Anything that is non transaction oriented, we have a consulting business that can affect those type of assignments. And across them, we're about a third, a third, a third across the three business lines.
0: I see. Okay. Very interesting. Okay, I'm going to orient the questioning more towards real estate from this mm-hmm. point only cuz it's a real estate podcast. And so, um you said that counter to uh, popular opinion, counter to mm-hmm. media, real estate is strong. You said this year might be your best year. And so w- what does that mean and what exactly are you doing and what is the focus?
1: Sure. So you know, I think in real estate, whenever there is dislocation, is a good thing. The The market going into COVID had become very efficient. Pricing was tight, capital was very inexpensive, and you didn't have to be the best investor, um, the best underwriter in order to do well in an environment where capital is not expensive. And so you didn't, your standards didn't have to be a stranger, of would be as tight. I think when you move into a dislocated market, uh, it changes things. And what COVID had done was change the demographics and the socioeconomic makeup across, across the, the cities and states around the US. And real estate at the end of the day is a local market business. So folks that, the, the intelligent folks in real estate saw opportunity. Because it means change was on the way. People were moving, which means where they're living has changed. Where they were going to work or maybe not had also changed. Where they were going to get their groceries had changed, which meant then how the retailers were getting those groceries and the concept of industrial and logistics has also changed. A cold storage had changed. And so the list goes on that wherever people move, it drives where real estate activity is. And that whole equation got completely mixed up as a result of COVID. And because of that, it meant opportunities that were attractive before become less attractive. So where are the new attractive opportunities? Well, yeah, that's for real estate folks to figure out how to follow the trends and where they should go. And so you've seen a shape up in attractive markets. You've seen a shake up in which products you should be in and a shake up in how you should underwrite those products in an environment where capital is no longer inexpensive. And so for real estate investors, most folks welcome these kinds of changes. There are some challenges for some, sure. But as many challenges that there are, there's as many opportunity and probably more.
0: Okay. In terms of how you fit into the ecosystem, have you raised a fund that you're now sourcing deals? Uh, Do you raise capital? What exactly does your firm do? What asset classes, et cetera, et cetera. So where do you fit in?
1: Sure. So I think right now, what we have done very well over the past two, three years is because we cover constituents from pension plans, foundations, endowments, sovereign wealth vehicles, as well as private equity managers. We have a big insurance coverage practice as well as well as all of the folks that use capital, it meant that we're very much integrated in the flow of information, the flow of ideas and understanding of what folks are looking for, how they're thinking about deploying it, as well as the folks that wanna use it and how they think about using it. When you cover that that ecosystem that way, it means you, you get pretty savvy if you're paying attention to what you think is coming next and what is coming around the corner. And so I'll give you a couple of examples of that, um, where we put out a piece several months ago on the industrial outdoor storage space. And we received a lot of comments along, well, what is that? And it is a segment of industrial that really got a pickup coming out of COVID. We covered a segment on active adult living, picking up on the changing demographics amongst seniors, which was similar to what's happened with the millennial bracket. We picked up on trends in cold storage, Um, seeing how the dislocation had impacted the supply chain. And so by focusing on niche products and focusing on where we thought the market was going, it meant that our perspective is to source opportunities where we think the market is going, not where the market was or where it necessarily is today. And because of that, that's what drives our business. We have a really high uh, success ratio on getting things done. Um, But we're very careful on client selection as a result. So we will raise capital on opportunities we think we can raise institutional capital for. We still have very active buying and selling of corporates, knowing where folks are looking to consolidate, where folks are looking to grow. And we have a very still active consulting practice, particularly amongst managers who want to elevate their business to the next level, but not quite sure how to do it or what they should be doing. And we go in and we figure out what they're strong at, where their skills are, where we can leverage them and tie that into vehicles and products where we think there is actually demand in order to fund them. So it's an all-encompassing business. Um, and I think we've just done very well out of client selection, on um, figuring out where the trends are and where we think the market is going.
0: Okay. And so when you say clients, are you talking about, like you had said earlier, Deborah? Could be pensions, could be insurance codes, it could be PE, it could be endowments, et cetera. Correct. Okay. And helping them allocate capital. Allocate, to these
1: Yes. Helping them allocate uh, folks, you know, if they want to, particularly on the pension plan or d- the direct LPs of capital, um, a lot of them are still new to corporate level investing. They understand the asset level, but we get engaged to help them underwrite corporates. We get engaged by insurance companies who want to make allocations into fund managers, but want someone to look at the corporate. And so a lot of the assignments we have, a core strength is underwriting the manager and determining if they're a good manager or a great manager. And once where we think they have a story or something about them that will resonate with capital that is out in the market. Because if you think about it, all these companies are all competing for the same capital, right? And the capital only has finite amounts that they have to allocate. So how do you get access into that capital? How do you, and same for a strategic. And you know, they're only, if you've got a strategic and you're a sell side, what's your message to those strategics that so that they want to acquire you? What are you going to tell them? I have a mantra where options are good. So you always want the other side to want you more than you want them. Right. So that's kind of what we're solving for. But in a finite world, you can't take anything for granted. So how do you separate yourself and how do you separate what you have versus everybody else?
0: Got it. In terms of you know underwriting the manager, mm-hmm. how do you like what's all involved in that? And it's funny because I just had a did a podcast yesterday where I was dealing with a, actually a, a, on the complete other side of the spectrum that you're working on. Literally, a person, a limited partner. He was one person in, in a partner. His that allocate directly into deals, and he his belief is the manager means more than the deal at the end of the day because it could be a great deal and a poor manager, and you'll lose all your money. So, you know, how do you underwrite the manager?
1: Well, I think the person you had in your podcast is very smart, um, and I couldn't agree more. You can have a great opportunity, a great deal, but if you don't have the right manager, it almost doesn't matter. Even an inexperienced or not a great manager can pretty much ruin any great piece of real estate. Um, so I think that's absolutely right. For, from us, you know, we have, we look at, uh, their track record, obviously their organization, their processes, and we look at all of those things, but it's the intangibles. Uh, you can't, you can't teach great entrepreneurial ship. In my mind, um, there are some skills you either have good judgment or you don't. Um, you either have the discipline to cut bait or you don't. Um, and some of these things that underlie great managers is based on the types of decisions they make, uh, how they've grown their business, how they start their business, how they underwrite their business. All of these things go into ascertaining what makes someone that you can be as trusted hands to trust that if the world goes sideways, that they're your guy. And some of that is very intangible that at this point I have spoken to, I don't know how many hundreds of managers to have a pretty good sense of of who has got the right stuff and who doesn't.
0: Interesting. Are there any red flags that are common that enable you to se- kind of separate the yes and no you know, in fairly short order?
1: Uh, somebody, an easy one, is someone in a conversation that we get the sense they're more focused on doing what's right for their corporate, which is not the same thing as doing what's right for your investors. Um, those two things are not the same. And, and being able to understand, do they always put their investors first? And how do they demonstrate that? And whether it's acquiring an asset, whether it's an allocation within their vehicle, whether it's how they staff their corporation as the advisor to their vehicle, how do they think about that? Because if they're a fiduciary, they need to act like a fiduciary and put prioritize what their what their fund investors' interests are first.
0: Hmm. Do you have a feel, or, or uh, is to, or do or do your clients have a preference? To investing in funds versus single assets? Is there any thinking along those lines?
1: The, the world has evolved on this point. Almost since the GFC, there was a push on uh capital becoming more actively involved in where the capital was being put to work. And so the concepts and that led to changes in the allocator and to the fund management model away from allocator to more vertically integrated as a result. That's continuing to evolve further where uh, LPs are looking to bring in house their real estate operations and manage more directly their own capital. And, and how that's played out is that it may be a preference more towards separate accounts and joint ventures where you have a greater degree of control over a fund. Um, and then even on the fund side, they might want to look to reduce their allocation and do more on the co-investment side so that they can control more of how their capital is being put to work. So that's almost akin to saying they're using the manager as a conduit to get access to deals and so instead of putting a hundred million into a fund, they might put 25 and at least 75 million for co-investment. I see. And so, and it's not that the fund management, um, there are not plenty of investors. There are plenty of investors that still only invest in funds. Um, and that's either through an allocation, they they just don't have enough people or they still have small shops or... They still want to put capital and spread smaller checks across a lot of different vehicles. It's really just an allocation policy as to how they're looking at the best way to deploy their dollars. There's plenty of folks that fit in both buckets.
0: I see. Um, On a very um, kind of a a, a micro retail side of things, um, there are a number, I've heard that a number of operators say that institutions will only invest, and this is probably mostly multifamily if I think about it, institutions will only invest in uh, sponsors that are vertically integrated. And then I've heard other people say that that's not necessarily true. And I'm just wondering, is there a common thinking along those lines as it pertains to asset management?
1: Yeah, I think you've picked up on a trend that I was alluding to, is that since the GFC there has been a shift by the lp for sponsors to have greater control over the real estate and that's been interpreted as being vertically integrated but what's interesting is how you interpret what vertical integration is does vertical integration mean just asset management portfolio management or does it mean active management over property managers or does it mean you need to have to be have a property manager too and and the jury's a little bit out on that because i've certainly seen uh, plenty of funds that are raised for multifamily where they don't have a property manager. But at the same time, I've seen ones that do. Uh, I think that decision is a little bit driven by how many units under management you actually have, because at some point, you know, it doesn't make sense for a manager to have a property manager in-house. It, it, that's kind of a, a unit decision question, depending on the markets you ran and the size you are and how many you have, because it's tough to make money in property management. So you need to have a rationale for why you were taking it on. And I, and I am not sure I think a whole lot of, of LPs think that if a manager has 10,000 units, they should be property managing them all in order to to you know, in order for them to allocate capital. I think there's a lot more points going to that decision-making matrix.
0: Very interesting. I hadn't heard that perspective, but it's common sense. I mean, how how if you've got, yeah, I mean if you got Twenty thousand or fifty thousand units across the country. How do you? How do you even do that?
1: That's right. A, a lot of more if you're vertically integrated, um, and and we do see them on the on the fund management side. But usually, they're larger managers, mm-hmm. right? They're not managing a thousand units. It's their larger managers where it becomes a point that you should internalize the property management because either economically. Be uh, for sourcing or knowledge or some other reason. Uh, there's a there's a rationale for it beyond thinking you have to have it in order to access the LP market. I'm not sure it's quite that bright line to that analysis.
0: Hmm. Okay, you so, so again at the top you have a fairly sanguine view of the market right now. Dislocation is good. I understand that. The consensus that I have, which, you know, there's, is it's anecdotal. Um, but that pretty much across asset classes, there's still a pretty fairly large bid ask delta right now. Interest rates have gone up, obviously, uh, dramatically in the last year, but, but sellers still want, you know, prices from, you know, 2001 and buyers aren't willing to pay. So. Are prices coming down in your view when you say, you know, it's a great time? What does that mean?
1: Well, for me, on the one hand, you obviously I'm a corporate advisor. Right. So what drives a lot of our business is um, what is the manager looking to do to grow their business and for them to take advantage of the market opportunity? So it's it's not we're not a broker. So we're not handling the buying and selling typically of individual assets. Right. What I would say is that, again, local, you know, real estate's a local market business and it's also depends on the product. So if you're an industrial right now, pricing is really tight. There are double digit bidders showing up for properties depending on where they are, particularly in industrial, where cap rates are low. They're still very low. And you've got product in affordable housing uh, that, you're again, is commanding significant bidding interest. Same with multifamily. Um, you wouldn't want to be in office. It's a tough space to be in uh retail is mixed and then the niche products it just depends again where the asset is and what the story is behind that asset uh i think you're right in terms uh uh, the pricing arbitrage between buyers and sellers i think that was prevalent more a year ago uh than it is today i think um That, that sellers, there's an increasing revision of expectation as to where things are because capital is just more expensive. But I also think we're seeing an increase in folks showing up that are paying for things all cash and we'll just deal with the cap stack later. Uh, No one thinks cap rates, no one thinks interest rates are staying up forever. And over a course of a cycle, you know, I'm not sure the interest rates are really that much out of whack with a cycle perspective. So I think you know folks who play the long game uh, understand that. And so if there's still a mixed bag out there. Is the transaction heavy at the asset level as it was two years ago? No. Uh, but it, as a market perspective, no. But I think if you take niche markets, niche products, and take it down to the to a particular property at a particular market, then I think the level of activity is driven by that asset in that market.
0: Yeah. I, that makes, I, I totally get that. Um, in, in does institutional, and this is such a broad question, but I don't know how else to ask it. Does institutional, uh, money in, in investments, do they prefer stuff that's kind of turnkey class, a you know, they'll accept a lower, you know, a lower return, their cost on capital is, is arguably less as opposed to riskier, you know, value add stuff, irrespective of, of asset class or no?
1: Well, I, the answer to that is the same as it is on the, what's going on at the asset level is with the cost, the investor universe is in uniform, right? So, but we do tend to class it, is a core core plus, value add opportunistic. Where's the fall in the spectrum? And then we look at things from yield and return. And, and I phrase it that way because I think over the course of a year, what has changed is in particularly in our dialogue. A year ago, folks were focused underwriting IRS. It was very IRR driven. And I think throughout, particularly this year, we're looking at things as much on a cash yield basis As we are on an IRR basis. So we raise programmatic capital for deals. And what we're finding is we're phrasing it in both ways is because they're investors that are yield driven. And so what they're telling us is, you know, a year ago, two years ago, you know, you were just fighting for allocation within real estate across product is cold storage better than self storage. Now the dialogue is, well, is real estate part of my allocation and what should it be vis-a-vis everything else in the universe, including the 5% I get on my bank account? And how does real estate compare to that? And then once I get in real estate, then I have to fight for allocation. And so you have to phrase things now in terms of yield, as well as in terms of IRR, payback periods, and much broader metrics. And the folks that had raised capital before may still be focused on IRR but what we are doing is accommodating that the market is as much broader um and we need to have a broader dialogue even with some of those folks who were before they may have just been irr driven
0: what are yields right now
1: oh it depends on the asset it says uh, so it depends on the asset but and that's where the pricing becomes very a, a lot tighter and people are bidding for it but you can get up to you know 7 8 yields on things um, and so even if you're, so if you're a debt investor right now, when debt managers are the most popular things in town these days, the private credit strategies, because so many people are focused on the thought that distress is coming. So it's about private credit. But, you know, when you look at the private credit market, it's, and you're trying to solve for what you can lend at, you know, you're obviously balancing those cash yields, you're balancing where you can, the borrowing rates are. But the challenge I think a lot of people miss on the, the debt, the private capital side,
0: is there's only so
1: much debt cost a property can accommodate. So if you're gonna move into private credit strategies, I understand that interest rates are up, but you know, where do you want those returns to be? And can you get those returns without leveraging your own capital? Right? Can you get to a, you know, an eight or a nine um, on a on a credit strategy? And they're going to compare that at the risk to a to a bank account. If you're above that, and you're talking in a ten above on your return for a credit strategy, you know, I do need leverage in order to get that, right? And leverage your own equity. And if you can get above that, what's the risk profile you're taking? So I think, you know, the thing was with interest rates is it mixes the whole conversation up both on the debt side, then it flows into preferred and mezzanine as well as on the equity side.
0: Got it. What is the difference between preferred and mezzanine?
1: Oh, it's, it's just the structure. The structure is going to determine, A, whether where you sit in the cap stack. It also impacts the pricing. And obviously, because they're two different instruments, the the, the terms around them are going to be different. Um, but either way, the easiest way to look at it is they're going to sit between the equity, but above this, but, but below the senior.
0: Voting. Got it. Okay. All right. So they sit in the same place.
1: They sit around the same place.
0: I understand. Okay. Um, very interesting question. And so you've already answered this question 900 different ways in this short conversation, but yet I'm going to be, I'm going to be obtuse and ask it anyway. You're, you're, consulting arrangements what do those look like and what are deliverables that you provide your clients in terms of the consulting piece as it pertains to real estate
1: yeah a, a lot of our recent assignments have been managers who have reached a point and they usually one fund vehicles and which is like a treadmill right so because what happens is you raise a fund you invest the capital, You liquidate it, you return the capital, you start all over again. The, the problem with that model is you can make a lot of money, but you don't create any value for your company. And, and again, those two things are different. I can make a lot of money liquidating my portfolios, but your corporation drives, gets its value from having recurring fee streams. So if you're doing one fund at a time, you're not building up any value. At your corporate, because your profit's never growing. It goes up, it goes down, it goes up, it goes down. And it's a yo-yo. So we call it like a trade, it's like a treadmill. And so that's not creating value. What what happens is a lot of companies get to that point and they're like, well, how do I create long-term value? Because I'm not going to live forever. And I've got this company, it's got employees, we make fees, we have a great track record. But it doesn't, I'm not, my profit's zero, or my profit's a million, my profit's two million, but I've made a lot of money. How do I create longevity? How do I create a sustainable business? And are there opportunities, or should I, uh, raise capital and raise more vehicles and create ongoing fees? Or should I sell my company to somebody else and let them help me build infrastructure and seed those vehicles and grow them? And what should they be? Or should I just buy someone else? And roll their company into my company, expand my management team, add on my products, et cetera. Or should I do that? What should I do? But I know where I'm sitting right now, I, I'm not creating long term value for my owners, my shareholders, or myself. So how do I get how do I get out of this? And that's where we get brought in.
0: I see. Very interesting. So what would you say amongst everything that you've done and all the different roles and different levels of engagement, et cetera, across different industries for that matter, what would you say are key lessons that you've learned?
1: Uh, I don't have take on every assignment. I only take on the ones that we generally believe we can get done. So as a result, nobody spins their wheels and nobody wastes their time. Uh Secondly, I only work with people I like on deals I like. <laughs> uh, that's that's actually really crucial to my uh, mental health that I do that. And probably the biggest one is to be smart in our hiring. It's we have, and I think it's a general issue across the industry. I don't know where all the good people went, but you know we we're always. I feel like we're in perpetual hiring mode as a company continues to expand in finding good people that can execute in this business because we exist. We exist because of our reputation. We exist because we're good at what we do. We don't have a balance sheet. We don't have research. We don't have lending, any of these things. So we get hired and paid because we're good at our job. Um, and so finding people to bring into this that share that mentality of cutting no corners, being disciplined, being smart and getting a deal done is not the same thing as getting the right deal done um and only getting the right deal done ensures that the the our clients keep coming back and so those things are fundamental and it's not always it's not easy to find it's not
0: no it isn't and uh, better better uh, no higher than a bad hire
1: you got that right <laughs> you got that. absolutely you got that right and you know it's over time and i think you know we take a lot of pride in getting the right deal done and and that ends up taking longer than you think uh, more resources than you think to get to the right answer, and and we take a lot of pride in getting the right deal done, and we've certainly cleaned up from enough investment banks who did bad deals for people, um, which tarnishes. You know we have to we have to push through that in cleaning it up, but most of our business is referral from people we've done business with before, and some of our relationships are ten years old. And we do everything for them. And they could go to other firms, they go to other banks, but they come to us. And then they refer other people to us because if they come to us and I tell them it is something, it cannot be done, or I don't think we're the right firm, uh, then that's what we will tell them. And I'm perfectly fine saying I can't do this, or this is the wrong deal at the wrong time in the wrong place, I'm perfectly fine. Because that response is a short-term response and I own this business. So I only can give long-term right answers because the short-term ones, I can't leave this firm and go somewhere someone else <laughs> and not worry about this client anymore. They're here and they know where, where our offices are. They know my number. Um, and so we have to do the right thing by our clients every time.
0: I got it. I don't know if you're a reader, if you have time to, if you, if you read nonfiction business stuff, but are there any business books that have been influential for you or a key book or anything like that?
1: Yeah. I love the book Grit by Angela Duckworth. Love it. It's, um I've referred to it many times over the years. Uh, I think it's the, her entire book of work in that book is underwrites pretty much every person in our firm has that common characteristic. And if there's something that defines culture, uh the 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 philosophy of that book definitely flows in into our firm. Um and so it's a good book. I recommend anyone who wants to be someone and go somewhere is uh it's a good book to read.
0: Wow, man, that's an endorsement. Anybody that wants to be somebody and go somewhere, oh my goodness. Yeah. Okay. Pick it up. Pick it up. Okay. Well, you know what, Deborah, this has been a fascinating interview from my perspective. I so much appreciate your time and I look forward to doing it again uh, with you maybe in 2024 and see how the world is then.
1: Perfect. Sounds good.
0: Thanks. Talk to you soon. All right.
1: Thank you. Bye-bye.